Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and we will read through the remaining of the chapter. And in honor of God's Word, in respect of God's Word, I ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy inspired Word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jewish people called Gentiles um, by that name, by being uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, time passes, doesn't it? Um, when we think about it, I've been a pastor for 40 plus years, and it just seems like the time has just gone by so quickly. And that's the way life is. It really is. And as a pastor for the last 40 years, I've been involved in the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Often it's been ministering to husbands and wives to help them save uh, their marriages. Often it's been trying to mend broken relationships between family members <clears throat> and friends. Often it's been trying to restore broken relationships among church members. And I'm reminded what Paul writes to two ladies in the church at Philippi who are not getting along very well. He writes in Philippians 4, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syndicate 
to greet and to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these woman, women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Now, we aren't told exactly what the problem that existed between these these two ladies, but they were faithful co-workers of the Apostle Paul. They were busy in the in the ministry, the gospel ministry, but um, they had a broken relationship here, and and they needed to be reconciled. and And Paul encourages this true companion of his. We don't know who that is either to help bring these two ladies together that they might be reconciled. Ephesians chapter 2 is about reconciliation. Uh, The word reconciliation or the word reconcile means to bring together as one. Now, we've already seen Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That's about God reconciling individuals, God bringing sinners into a right relationship with himself. Now, here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that's about God reconciling these two great groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. It's about God bringing together Jews and Gentiles into one body, and we know what that, that body is. That body is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's day, the greatest division in humanity in humanity was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, they hated each other. And, you know, Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews. The feeling was absolutely mutual. William Barclay, in his little commentary on Ephesians, he writes this. He says, Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Now, that's not much love in that statement, is it? A common motto was, the best of the serpents crush and the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. Now, how about the Gentiles? What did they feel towards the the Jews. Well, the Gentiles also harbored an intense hatred for Jews. Barclay goes on in his commentary. He says, the barbarians, that's anyone non-Greek, including Jews, were enemies by nature. The Greeks waged a truceless war against people of other races, against barbarians. The Jews, they considered Gentiles dogs. I mean, not, not these pretty little puppy dogs, you know, that we have as our pets, but mangy, wild dogs. And Gentiles thought of Jews as enemies of the human race. So there was no love lost between Jews and Gentiles. Only God, only God could reconcile Jews and Gentiles, and that's exactly what God did. But before we see how God did it, okay, before we see how God did it, Paul tells us what a desperate situation the Gentile world was in. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 once again. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, here it is, 
here's the condition, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I think you would agree with me that the plight of the Gentiles was terrible. Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of all the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, folks, it doesn't get any worse than that. Gentiles had no access to God. In other words, the only way Gentiles could have access to God was by, was by becoming a proselyte, by becoming a Jew themselves. You know, I think these three words sum up the lost condition of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles for that matter. Without Christ, without hope, without God. But there's good news. God came to man's rescue, and God came to the rescue of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, back in verse 2, we read those sweet words, but God, but God. I mean, I mean in, in, in the, the beginning of that chapter, I mean, God just paints this bleak picture of mankind without Christ. But in verse 2, we read, but God. God in his mercy and grace intervened and brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He came to our rescue by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Now, in verse 14, we read more sweet words. Uh, he, he speaks of it a little differently, but it's really, it really means the same thing. But now, in verse 2, but God, now in verse 14, but God, God also intervened to bring together Jews and Gentiles into one body. Now, let's see how he did it. Let's see how he did it. Again, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, so the Gentile world that was once far from God, has been brought near to God. So the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is this, what brought them near? What brought them near to God? Well, it says in verse 13, the blood of Christ. We're not brought near to God by keeping the law. It doesn't happen that way. By joining the church or by being baptized, or living a moral life. The only way to be brought near to God is by the blood of Jesus Christ. The old hymn has it right. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Christ can bring those who are far from God to God. Now, I want to just park here just for a few minutes, okay? You know, there are those who don't like to speak of the blood of Jesus Christ. They, they call it a bloody religion. They say referring to the blood is just too gory. It's just too violent. 
and should be completely and absolutely removed from our Christian vocabulary. You know, and I know that many mainline denominations have taken all the references of the blood of Jesus out of their hymn books. They tell us that it was God's love that saved us, not the blood of Jesus. My friends, that's just not true. That's just not biblical. God's love is not what saved us. Jesus' shed blood on the cross is what saved us. See, my friend, it was necessary for Jesus to die a violent and, yes, a bloody death in order to save sinners. You know, the blood speaks of the, uh, uh, of the gravity and the seriousness of sin. Uh, Jesus could not have saved lost people by dying of old age. He could not have saved us by dying of cancer. He could not have saved us by dying of some disease. He could not have saved us by dying of a heart attack. It was necessary for him to die and to shed his precious blood on the cross. Salvation required the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the shedding of blood that covered Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It was the shedding of blood under the old covenant sacrifices that covered Israel's sin. And it was the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ that finally and completely and for all time removed sin. The Apostle Peter says it well when he says that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those who say that the blood of Jesus is not important. Those who say that the blood of Jesus is just too offensive and must be removed, they don't understand the price God paid to purchase our salvation. God the Father had to send his one and only Son into the world and offer him up on a bloody altar of Calvary to save us. Nothing else would do. Nothing else would do. The blood of Jesus is essential to the gospel message. Take the blood out, and you no longer have a gospel. So what did God do to bring peace between Jews and Gentiles? What did God do? I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He, he calls it God's great peace mission. God's great peace mission. Look at verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now what was God's peace mission? God the Father, we've already seen it, God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross to tear down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that separated them in order to bring them together into one body, one body, the church of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is also the great peacemaker that breaks down barriers and divisions among people today. Jesus breaks down racial divisions. He breaks down racial divisions. Racism is a sin. 
Racism is a great evil today. What is the cure for racism? It's Jesus. See, my friend, you can't embrace Jesus and embrace racism. You can't do it. Only Jesus can change the heart. Legislation can't do that. Acts of Congress really can't do that. I'm not saying those are wrong. I'm just saying only Jesus can change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. Jesus breaks down political divisions. It might surprise you that God's not a Republican or a Democrat. You know, there's so much political hatred in our world today. You know, we see it everywhere, wherever we look. Turn on the TV and there it is, you know. We even see it in our streets, don't we? We see it everywhere. And it's dividing the church. It's dividing Christians. What is the cure? Jesus. You know, because we belong to Jesus, we can love one another. Yes, we can love one another even though we might disagree with one another. Jesus also breaks down ethnic divisions. You know, in my many trips to India and other places in the world, you know, I've met believers who look different than I look. They had a different culture than I have. They spoke a different language than I spoke. But we were united because we had Jesus in common. I know I shared this story once. Uh, we were in central India, and we pulled up to this little stone church, just a small church. And we walked in, and they were speaking Hindi. They were speaking a different language, and, and they were dressed different. They just looked different in so many ways. And I, I said, man, what am I going to get out of this? And they brought out the bread and the wine. And it all pointed to Jesus. And I said, man, we have so much in common. We have Jesus. Jesus also breaks down the generational divisions. And I'm sure you've heard of the generation gap. There ought not to be a generation gap in, in the church. God's church is multi-generational. Just read, just read the New Testament. It's, it's all in there. It's about young people and older people and women and men and young women and older women. It, it's, it's all in there. It's a multi-generational church. Jesus eliminates the generation gap because both young and old are valuable parts of the body of Christ. And also Jesus breaks down gender divisions. And Christ, male and female, are all equal in God's sight. Yes, they have different functions in the home, different functions in the church, but they're both heirs of the grace of life, as Peter says. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria, this is what he wrote. He says, we who worship God in a new way, as the third race are Christians. He calls it the third race. Not Jews, not Gentiles, not black, not white, but a third race. Early Christians called themselves a new race, and they were right. We are a new race, and the name of that race is 
believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. Yes, in Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. Oh, that old hymn is, is so true. Paul puts it this way in Galatians three twenty-eight: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is the answer, is the answer. He's always been the answer. He will always be the answer that divides us. Now, what was the main source of contention between Jews and Gentiles? Well, we've already seen it over and over again. It was the law, the commandments, the ordinances. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The Jews followed the law. The Gentiles did not. The Jews followed the rite of circumcision. The Gentiles say, don't get that knife near me. The Jews followed the dietary requirements of the law. The Gentiles said, I love pork and shrimp. You see, the law was the main source of division between Jews and, and Gentiles. It was a wall of hostility, a barrier between these two groups. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall that separated Gentiles from, from, the, from the Jews. In other words, Gentiles could only go so, so far. There was this wall. And on that wall, there were inscriptions in Latin and Greek forbidding Gentiles to enter. Archaeologists discovered um, two of these stone inscriptions in 1871 and also in 1934. And this is what those inscriptions read. No foreigner, that is no Gentile, may enter the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary, there in the temple, and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have themselves to blame for, the, for his ensuing death. Now what Paul is telling us here is that Christ tore down the barrier, the barrier, the, the wall of hostility that divided Jews and Gentiles. Again, Pastor Warren Wisby writes, by fulfilling the demands of the law by his righteous life and by bearing the curse of the law by his sacrificial death, Jesus removed the legal barrier that separated Jew and Gentile. The law which once divided Jews and Gentiles no longer exists. God brought together Jew and Gentile into one new man. God didn't make Gentiles into Jews or vice versa. He made both Jews and Gentiles one, placing them in one body, the church. When, Gen when Gentiles are saved, guess what? They become part of the church. When Jews are saved, they become part of the church. There's no Jewish church. There's no Gentile church. There's only one church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now again, how did God bridge this great divide? 
Again, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross. It was all through the cross. Jesus is the great peacemaker. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're all saved the same way. We all have the same access to God this very same way. Verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, that must have sounded like music in the ears to these Gentiles. Music in their ears. You know, God doesn't have any stepchildren. In God's family, there are no second-class citizens. But, but, but folks, we, we, we've got to face reality. And the reality is this today. There's a great divide, and, and it's not between Jews and Gentiles. Sadly, it's between Christians. Some in the church feel like they don't belong. They just don't measure up. They're not good enough. Several years ago, I was visiting a family, and the mother told me flat out, she said, well, Pastor, I, I just want you to know that my family can't come to your church because we don't have nice enough clothes to wear. Well, that broke my heart how that must have broken God's heart. Thank God it wasn't this church, but it was God's church. And this family, this family felt that they wouldn't be welcome in God's church. Friends, in Christ, there is not rich or poor. We've already said we are rich in Christ. All of us are rich spiritually in Christ. In Christ, there is no Democrat or Republican. Our allegiance is to God, King Jesus. There is no black or white. We're members of this third race, remember? This new race. The Christian race. We're all one in Christ. You know, I have my political views as you do. I might vote the same way you do. I might vote differently than you do. I'll be glad to have a political conversation with any of you outside the church. But here we worship God. And here we hear God's word. Politics has no place in the church. And to be just transparent and very honest with you this morning, I'm tired about hearing everybody's view of the vaccine. Do what's best for you. But here we worship Jesus Christ. In fact, God commands me to preach the word. I don't read anything about preaching politics. 
And I'm not going to do it. Never have, never will. Now, don't misunderstand. We must take a stand against the great moral issues of our day, like the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman for life. We must not back down on that. And the sanctity of life, the born and the unborn. It was a privilege for for some in our church to go out to Planned Parenthood and to pray for these these young, most of them are young mothers who are going in there to end the life of their, their unborn babies. You know, We need to take a stand against the moral. These are biblical truths. But, but folks, politics divides. Jesus unites. You know, when situations arise that tend to divide us, and they will, <laughs> they will. Just remember that we are saved by the same Savior. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And we're the same children of the Father. There is so much more that unites us than what divides us. Now, let me tell you what God's up to. Let me tell you what he's doing. Look at verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What Paul is saying, God is erecting, he's building a great building and you and I, as Christians, all Christians all over the place, all over the world, we're stones in that great building. God's building his church. Jesus predicted, he said, I will build my church. And the church is built on the foundation of the New Testament prophets and apostles who gave us the New Testament scriptures. Now, you need to be careful about this. The foundation is really not the apostles themselves. The foundation is their teaching. The foundation of the church is the word of God. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone of that foundation that binds, that binds this building, this church together. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and the word of God. Now, folks, tamper with that foundation and the church will crumble and fall. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. A church that is built on personality, whether it's the pastor's personality or whether it's a, a leader's personality in the church, that church will crumble and fall. A church that is built on programs, will crumble and fall. A church that is built on theatrics will crumble and fall. A church that is built on fads and gimmicks will crumble and fall. But a church that is built on the firm foundation of the Word of God and Jesus Christ will stand, will stand. The Word of God must always be front and center in the life of our church. Now, soon a search committee 
will be selected and given the awesome responsibility of recommending a new pastor to lead our church. And let me tell you, my friend, there is not a more important job than that. There's not. There's not a more important job than that. You say, well, well, well what's our job? To pray and to pray and to pray. Now, what's God doing? Look at verse 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure, that is the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, as we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the Word of God, that's the foundation, the whole building grows into a beautiful temple where God lives, where God dwells. I want you to look with me and see how the church is described here. The church is a building designed by God himself. The church is a dwelling place, the place where God lives. The church is a holy temple where we as Christians serve as New Testament priests offering spiritual sacrifices to God. We saw that in the book of Hebrews, didn't we? We are the temple where God dwells. You know, how blessed we are. The Father designed the church. The Son purchased the church with his own precious blood. The Spirit indwells the church. You know, the Spirit said, that's where I'm going to live. God doesn't live in this building as beautiful as it is, and we're so thankful for it, but he doesn't live in this building, you know. He lives in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church corporately is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in his people. So it's really incorrect to call this a sanctuary. It's not a sanctuary. You know who the sanctuary is? You are. You are. The church is the household of God. Made up of Jews and Gentiles. People of every tribe and tongue and nation. And I love that passage in Revelation where we see the church triumphant. We see the church one day when we're all in heaven. We're surrounding the throne of God, people of every tribe, tongue and, tongue, and nation, praising God. Folks, that's the church. How about you? Do you belong to God's church? Do you belong to his church? You say, well, pastor, how, how, do, I, how do I belong to God's church? There's only one way. John tells us in, in the first chapter of his gospel, he says, as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them gave he the right to become children of God. So have you received him? And he goes on in that passage to tell us what it means to receive him. To those who have believed in him. And the word believe means to trust. It means to rely upon him. To depend upon him as your savior. To trust him. 
for your salvation and him alone. Have you done that? If you have, yeah, you're in his family. You're in his church. But my friend, if you haven't, it doesn't matter how many ponds you've been baptized in. It doesn't matter how many churches you belong to. It doesn't matter how many good works you have worked in your life. You're not in God's family and you're not in his church. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called children of God. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have torn down the dividing wall that not only divides Jews and Gentiles, but divides Christians as well. Thank you, Lord. You have, you have opened up the way. Thank you so much. Lord, I pray for any in here today that might not know you in that personal way. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, work in their hearts, that they might see their need for you, their need for Christ, not religion, but Christ, to save them and might even trust him right now. My friend, I might be speaking to you. Maybe right now in the quiet time of this service, you just you might need to just cry out to to God and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died and rose again for me. I believe that Jesus is the only Savior. And dear God, I, I want you to know that I, I trust him as my Savior. God, help me to live my life from here out in a way that brings glory to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time together. And Lord, during this time of invitation, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you'll work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. You might wonder, well, why does the pastor come down here? Well, I come down here not just to look pretty, you know, I come here to receive you, you know, to pray, to pray for you. And my friend, as we sing this last hymn that we call the Invitational Hymn, this is an opportunity for you to respond to God, okay? And there might be some in here today that really need to, you know, respond as far as salvation is concerned. I need to get right with God, you know. I'll be down here to pray with you. Maybe as a Christian, you just... Things are out of whack in your life and things aren't where they ought to be. Maybe you need to just come to God and say, God, you know, I'm just going to trust you for all these things that I have no control over in my life. Whatever your need is, I'd love to pray with you. Yes, you can pray right where you are. You can make any commitment wherever you might be. But, you know, there's something special, I think, about a public commitment that cements things in our heart. And it also gets God's people to pray for you as well. Let's stand together. <clears throat>